0: My name is Maulome. I also go by Lydia, and I am a member here at FFMC. Today's scripture reading will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, from the Common English Bible, and it can be found on page 1,289 in the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. A man named John was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him, everyone would believe in the light. He himself wasn't the light, but his mission was to testify concerning the light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The Word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory that like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. And good morning everybody joining us online today. We're glad that you all are here, uh, whether physically or digitally, as we get into today's uh, message. Uh, Has everybody got their Christmas shopping done? Anybody Christmas shopping online this year? Yeah, me, me too. So I was actually looking for a gag gift because I like giving away funny gag gifts. So I was looking for a gag gift online and shopping around online, and I was looking at different things, and I stumbled across this gift called Dancing with Jesus. Uh, I think we had an image of this, right? And it's like a bobblehead Jesus that kind of like, you know, bobbles around, and it actually comes with a little dance booklet that teaches you how to dance with the, quote, Lord of the dance, it says in there, and uh, so a lot of tongue-in-cheek here. And it also comes, I guess there's a a fold-out thing that comes with it, it's a conga line. I'm wondering if it's a conga line of the disciples behind him or something, I don't know. But I looked at this and I thought, oh, this is kind of funny, right? So that was my first impression. And uh, so I thought about this little gift about Jesus and and how we, you know, can dance with Jesus, right? And then I came across another thing that was Mr. Rogers. And there was this Mr. Rogers head that sits on your desk or in your house and you can press a button and it'll give you a, a saying of Mr. Rogers, you know, a famous saying of Mr. Rogers comes with a little flip chart of wise sayings of Mr. Rogers and has a little flip chart and so forth. And so you could take Mr. Rogers with you wherever you go and remember all the wise things that Mr. Rogers said in the neighborhood, right? And so I was thinking about these two, like, and then I was looking around more and I couldn't find any talking Jesus heads that gave wise things about Jesus. And I thought about that. I was like, okay, we're dancing with Jesus and kind of making fun of Jesus and yet we're kind of taking Mr. Rogers seriously and I thought of in the moment like is that not true of our culture right that our culture our society looks at Jesus a little bit differently than it does Mr. Rogers and is it possible that Mr. Rogers today has more influence in our culture and society than Jesus question what do you think Do you think that Jesus, because I think a lot of times when I think and see things and the way that Jesus is portrayed today, I think, you know, we're probably, people in our society and our culture are more likely to listen to something that Mr. Rogers had to say versus something that Jesus had to say. And it kind of made me think about this. And like, so what's happened, right? Well, we heard a text, we heard from the Gospel of John today about the worth of Jesus. Like, What makes Jesus so important? What makes Jesus worthy of our attention? And Jesus is more than just the Lord of the Dance. Jesus is, is something to be considered and worth our consideration in today's world. I want to just zero in today. We're not going to unpack all 14 verses, but I do want to unpack a little bit more one of the key verses in this passage today, and that's verse 14. Let's read it again. It says this The Word became flesh. And made his home among us, we have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. I thought about this, this idea that we see here. The word became flesh. We have a big uh, word for that in the church, or another word for that in the church called incarnate. It's the incarnation. that The divine would be embodied. That's what it means to, incar- to be incarnated. Now, the word here in this passage, is actually a, a word that, rec- that means the, the nature of God, the essence of God, the same God who is creating the universe. This is the God, the divinity, right, of God that's doing this. Notice also in the passage, it refers to the word as also the light. What is the known universe made up of? What's the main energy source that created the whole universe? This is simple science question, which you can respond to, by the way. What's that? Light, right? I mean, if you think about the whole known universe, the essence of energy that created the universe and is a part of the whole universe is light. And so again, this is uh, referencing back to Genesis in the very beginning of the Bible saying, you know, the Word was with God. It was God. It is the very nature of God. It's the divinity of God it is the divine presence of God, the same divine presence that was creating the whole universe and shedding light into the whole world, universe, and said, "Let there be light." That was actually a word from God, a command from God, and so this is what it, it's talking about—the word. And then it became this word became really literally means to become something it never was before. So the word, the divine God's God, became something that God never was before. And what was that? God became flesh. Flesh. Now flesh has a little bit, in our language, has a little bit of different uh, understanding, right? We think of the flesh as, as being sinful, human nature, frail, weak, uh, short, uh, limited, right? And it has weakness and it is tempted, it is tempted and it has desires. And all these desires and temptations are actually part of the fleshly world that we encounter and live in. So it's the human limitation, the frailty, the weakness of the flesh. And that's talked about if you read later into the New Testament, it talks about this idea. And so this idea that the Word, the, the, the Holy, the Divine would become and take on the very nature of human beings. human God's nature and human nature coming together in this incarnation. Can you get your mind around that, your heart around that today, that God is in enfleshed? Is that hard to understand? Is that hard for us to actually think about? Because it's always been hard to think about, actually. In fact, early Christians, and uh, there were groups of early Christians that did not think that the divine, that God was so holy, that God was holy, there was no way that God could become flesh, that this idea could happen, because they just couldn't foresee, they couldn't, it wasn't in their their perspective to actually allow the divine, the holy, to become something that was unholy, human, limited, frail. And they actually didn't believe in the bodily form of divinity. They didn't believe that this was, they didn't believe in the incarnation in this sense. And what they did believe was that Jesus came, but Jesus couldn't have been a human. Jesus had to be like a ghost or an apparition or some other manifestation of God. And so they actually just took the whole idea that Jesus was human out of the equation because they just couldn't understand how something holy would be in something unholy, the flesh. These people were referred to as docetists, or there's a, there's a uh, heresy called docetism. Now, we in the church believe that, God, that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine, that these two things come together. Even if we don't understand it, even if we can't get our brains and hearts around it, that we claim this belief, that it, Jesus was both fully human and fully divine, both natures coexisting in Jesus. Then the next phrase there is, we have seen his glory. Well, who's we? The disciples, not just John, but John and all the disciples, they saw, they saw his glory. Now, glory is this idea that, that, it, it, that when we see something or observe something, it evokes a good opinion of that, or we it evokes that, oh, this is beauty, this is worthy of our attention, this is valuable to us. And here it's really the undescribable, unspoken manifestation of God that was being revealed in Jesus. And if you keep reading the Gospel of John, you'll see this word glory keep coming up, right? After Jesus turns water to wine, it says that it revealed God's glory. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says it was so that you could see God's Glory, right? The worth, the value of God. And I think about this idea that really the incarnation is to reveal to us the the wonderful beauty and glory of God in Jesus to the world. Maybe even a world that sometimes just makes them into a figurine with a bobblehead. That it's actually that Jesus is worthy of our attention because Jesus reveals God's glory. And how does Jesus do that? Well, it's interesting how John is so poetic because he talks about word and flesh, and then he talks about truth and grace, another two other things that we have a hard time putting together, right? I know a lot of people who love the truth and they lack grace, and I know a lot of people who have got a lot of grace for other people but lack truth, and they, it's hard to keep those two together, that we can be all grace or all truth, but it doesn't, it seems hard for us to, to, to keep, to embody both of them at the same time. I think about Paul's words where he said when we're to speak to one another, to speak the truth in love, or speak the truth, we could also say in grace. Grace and love, right? So this grace is the idea that we unconditionally love other people, that, that God unconditionally loves us, right? That's grace. That we can't earn it, there's nothing we can do to merit it, it's undeserved, but God loves us anyway. We haven't done anything to to get God to love us. That's grace, right? Now, truth is something that's stable, constant, trustworthy, and that's found in God. I think about how often people claim the truth and hold, say they possess the truth. Do do, do you ever do that? Do you ever say, I'm right and everybody else is wrong? Have you ever thought that? How can we as human beings, in our frail, limited perspective, on reality really make that claim really God has a claim on the truth because God has a perspective on reality that is different than ours because we're limited we have a we have a limited perspective on reality in fact whenever uh, we talk about conflict um, in relationships there's like you, you there's an old phrase there's there's my side of the story your side of the story and then there's the real story <laughs> right? Because we are in our limited human capacity, we can only see our part of the story. But what God sees is the whole story, and that's where truth is found. So whenever we claim to have the truth, and we claim to be the containers of the truth, and we've got it and nobody else has it, we're actually in danger of claiming to be God. If we're claiming that our truth on reality is the only truth, maybe God's truth is where we're at, we need to be looking to. We always want to look to God's truth, God's perspective on reality, which is constant, trustworthy, stable, and that's what we find in Jesus. So our role really is not to be containers or possessors of the truth, but we are to be pointers to the truth, right? We are pointers to the truth and not possessors of it. And who do we point to? We point to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. What we're saying to one another and to other people is that if you want the truth, seek Jesus. There's where the truth will be found. I can give you some of it, I can give you my perspective on it and what I think the truth is, but ultimate truth is found in God and found in Jesus. And so we look to Jesus to be the truth and the grace for us. So Jesus is the embodiment of truth and grace. And again, this is our incarnation. So what does that mean for us? Does that have any, does any of this? These words, does any of this verse have any implications for us? Well, I think it does. I think it has implications for how we are the church. So, what would it be for us to be the incarnational church, to be a church that is incarnational in its ministry to the world, to the city, to the neighborhood, right? I love the way the message version puts this verse it says that God moved into the neighborhood, right? We are, we are God's people. We are churches that exist in neighborhoods and communities, and we are incarnational. We are to be incarnational as well in the way we church, in the way we are a church. I was talking to uh, Dr. Doug Strong, a seminary, professor, a seminary professor across the street this week. We were having lunch, and we got on the topic of incarnation because that's what you do with seminary professors. You talk about stuff like this, and pastors, I guess. And he said, you know, there's a church in, uh, in a, a place called Avebury. And so Avebury is a hinge. You ever, uh, has anybody ever heard of Stonehenge? Right? So Stonehenge is a, is a circle uh, where they believe that there was worship, uh, nature worship, pagan worship, and even sometimes uh, worship of the, the evil one, the devil, happening at these sites in, in cultic, uh, pagan, old pagan culture, ancient pagan culture. And so these hinges were built and created And we know Stonehenge, because that's the famous one, but Avebury Henge is actually a different place, and you can actually go walk around it. If you go to Stonehenge, you just look at it from a distance. But evidently, at this one, you can go look around and walk near the stones, and uh, they're placed in a circle, and you can see the circle there in the hinge, and so they built up a mound and then into a circle, and then the rocks are there around that circle. And this this was probably created and built before 2200 B.C. And so for a couple thousand, over 2,000 years, this worship of other deities, other figures of nature, of whatever terms you want to use, was happening on this site. And then Christianity came after, obviously after Jesus uh, was born, and they came and Christians came to this area, and and they moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) Now this church, there's a church now that was built in 1,000, so 1,000 years after Christ, a church was built, and it was interesting because they built the church right in the middle of that circle, which really is symbolic, isn't it? And what it's symbolic of is that the, that the people that lived there had, had transformed, like they had transformed and they had chosen to be followers of Jesus, and so as a result, the church was built. So I don't want to give you the impression that they, the Christians came in and built a church in the middle of a, of a place, another place of worship. That's not what happened. But over time, as they moved into the neighborhood, as they were incarnational in that, uh, in that place, they then, people became followers of Christ. And so then they decided, so think about this, the people that had, had become followers of Jesus in that neighborhood, then they decided later to put a church in the middle of where they once worshipped something else. So they became something that they weren't before. And I think that's an image of what it, you know, of an incarnation that the church is to move into the neighborhood and build a So it's not like we just come in and plop a building down and all of a sudden God's there. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that people come into community and into neighborhoods and what they do, what, what the church does is say, there's truth and grace in Jesus. There's the embodiment of God. And to be pointers to Jesus in their lives and in the life of the community, right? And to remind the community that Jesus has come and that Jesus is worthy of their attention. Because I think today, if I really am honest, at least my, my, own, my own feeling of this, I'll say that, is that I feel like as a Christian, I've been pushed out of the circle. Like I'm not in the circle anymore as a Christian. That within our city and within our state and within our world today that Christians are, are, are pushed out of the, the center of society now. And that we, we want to kind of, there's a part of us that wants to like jump back in there, right? Because, you know, decades ago we were, in, we were in the center, or we felt we were anyway. But today we're not anymore. And I actually think this is the time to be incarnational, not to d- jump in the center again, but I think this is the day for us to be moving back into our neighborhoods and being Christ followers in our neighborhoods and looking and pointing out to others that Jesus is worthy of their attention. Not, not, and there, there's a lot that, that has to be done there, right? So I think about this, like, so I think we got to get kind of back to doing that. Kind of like this, what the first missionaries did probably in Avebury, is they just showed up and moved in the neighborhood and built relationships and loved people there in the neighborhood and cared for them. And over time, they saw Jesus. So this also has implications for us then, right? If we are a part of the church, then we are called to be incarnational Christians. We're to be the incarnation as well. And so how we interact in our neighborhood and how we're pointing out others to other people pointing out Jesus and showing, revealing the glory that is in Jesus uh, does matter for us. You know, I I hear a lot of Christians say this, and it's a phrase that's been going around for a while, um, but the phrase is, well, we're, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Have you ever heard that phrase? Be in the world, but not of the world. And I think if I interpret that a little bit further, what I've heard that to mean is, well, be in the world, but be really, really, really careful that you're not of the world. Be really careful not to be tainted, by the world, to be, become anyway unholy by the world around you, right? So there's this, so we tend to want to, because of that, we tend to want to separate ourselves from the world, so much so that we're not only not of the world, we're not even in the world anymore. And maybe that's the reason we've been pushed out of the circle, because we just haven't been in it. And so again, because we're not in it, we're not in the neighborhood, we're not in society, we're not in the culture, they can't see Jesus. Right? They can't see the worth of Jesus because we're not there to help reveal it, to be incarnational in that sense. So we retreat from the world. You know, one of the things I like about uh, sports is that it gives me an opportunity to be around people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't go to church, who maybe don't even want to have anything to do with God and I, so I play, I've played basketball in some pretty rough neighborhoods. I've played inter, uh, co-ed volleyball at the YMCA. I've done triathlons in a former life. And uh, all those opportunities, all those times, I, I love doing it because I love sports, but also I get to meet people who think differently than I do and are sometimes curious about God. And so I get to have these conversations with people. And one of my favorite compliments From a person, so I'll be like, you know, after a run or a bike, I'll be talking with somebody. We'll be, you know, grabbing, uh, rehydrating and sitting down and just talking about life. Or on the sideline of a a basketball court or volleyball court, I'm sitting there and I'm having conversations about just life stuff with people. And over time, they usually say something. My favorite compliment that they give me is this. They say, they, they phrase it different ways, but they come to this conclusion and they say something like, you know, you don't seem like a pastor. You seem normal. That says a lot right there, doesn't it? What is their view of Christians? What is their view of pastors, right? And then, but notice that I'm then able to have conversation with them about God and about Jesus because I, I can, we can relate. See what I'm saying? And so that's a different place to come. And so what I, what's also happening for them is that some of their misconceptions and some of their assumptions about God and about Christians is starting to be challenged because I'm in relationship with them, Nor, like a normal person, right? I'm not going in with my Bible to volleyball and asking everybody to huddle up and, hey, let's pray before we play volleyball so nobody curses tonight. You know, see what I'm saying? Like, that's not how you approach that. But it is on the sidelines of that court that those conversations happen. And sometimes even when you get invited into the homes to eat or go grab some food together or whatever after the game. Those are where real life conversations happen. And that's where we get to say, I don't have it all figured out, but I know someone who does. I know someone who's got grace and truth for you that will heal you and help you. So that's what it means, right? To be an incarnational Christian. Because you think about this, how will people ever see God's glory and the worth in Jesus if we don't point to it? If we don't reveal it to them? Because here's the thing, today, people have a lot of obstacles to knowing Jesus, more so than probably any other time. I won't say any other time, but in recent centuries, people are, it's hard for them to believe in Jesus today. Because there's all these obstacles. I I look at it as kind of like rocks in the soil, and the seed can't even be planted in their heart because there are too many rocks in there. And sometimes part of our role is just to remove the rocks, to remove the misconceptions, to remove the assumptions, to remove the, the false understanding of and fears that they have about Christians and about Jesus about the church or about God, whatever it is, is just to help them unearth those things and to have a real conversation and say, maybe it's a little different than you thought. Maybe Jesus is worthy of your attention to just help them to see the worth of Jesus, both his truth and his grace, right? So think about that. Think about how disruptive the incarnation was. Word become flesh. That's disruption. To put a church in the middle of a cultic worship site is disruption. <laughs> For you and I to have a conversation about some misconceptions people have about God, that can be disruption, but in a good way, right? We're to be disruptors of those misconceptions and false assumptions that people have. So I was thinking about this, and just maybe a thought to ponder is did I tell you, I told you about the docetists, right? The people who didn't believe in the flesh part of the, of the incarnation. I kind of wonder if we're docetists today. Like, if sometimes in the church as Christians, we, we so focus on the divinity that we, and, and it doesn't seem right to put God into the flesh. And so we, we kind of distance ourselves from the humanity not just of Jesus, but from the humanity of people in our neighborhoods. And so we're not incarnational because we focus more on one part of it than the other, which is just part of the way we work. It's the way our brains work, right? We want to, have you ever noticed we want to compartmentalize everything? At least I do. Maybe you have a better mind than me or brain than me, but my brain wants to categorize and box up and everything. Uh, for example, uh, how was your Thanksgiving, by the way? How was your Thanksgiving? Good Thanksgiving? Rough thing. It could have been rough around that table. I don't know. Uh, But when you have a big meal, like a Thanksgiving meal, or maybe you're getting ready for a big Christmas meal, what what do you do? What does your family do or the people you're with, your friends or your roommates, whatever, when you gather for a big meal, like after the food is finished, like everybody's like kind of pushed themselves away from the table at this point and they're just sitting there at the table. What happens next in your family or wherever you go for your big meal celebrations? What what happens next? You sleep. All right. Good. Yeah. Let's see, sleep. What other people do? Do the, do the dishes. All right. Anybody do anything else? Watch football. If it's Thanksgiving, it's football. Right. Watch the Detroit Lions lose another game. All right. Put away the leftovers. All right. Now now you're now I'm with you, Michaeline. So so when we end a meal. So here's the thing. When I got married to Heather, I noticed something different about our families, and it was around the family meals. And maybe you recognize this, too, in your families. So at the end of a family meal at my wife's family, they, they leave all the food out, all the dishes out, nobody starts cleaning them, and they just sit around and talk. They, they have conversation, right? Now, in my house, I grew up with a science teacher who knows about bacteria, and, and, and my mom likes to keep things tidy, right? And so in my family, what you did after the meal was over is you went and you put all the leftovers away and you boxed them up in a little can you put the mashed potatoes in its container and you put the turkey in its container and you got into the fridge as quick as possible because as soon as that bacteria sets in, it's tainted, right? It's tainted food. You can't eat it anymore. So instead of us spending our time in relationship, we're boxing up stuff and putting it in the fridge, You know, because here's the thing. I don't like it to be messy. Have you ever noticed that loving people is messy? That they don't always fit in our little boxes? And, and we're so sometimes afraid of being tainted by them or their ideas or their thoughts that we distance ourselves from them. We step away from them. We step out of relationship. But that's not Incarnation. Jesus stepped into our world, stepped into relationship, even in a world that did not agree with him or think like him or even want him in the world. They rejected, some rejected him. But those who accepted him, he became, they became the children of God. Think about the, the birth of Jesus. The birth, that's messy. Being born is messy. And then not only that, but being laid in a manger, a feed trough, is messy. And here's the thing, being incarnational gets messy. But thanks be to God that God looked beyond our mess and came and to be with us anyway. <laughs> that God stayed at the table with us even despite the mess around us. God didn't come into our world just to box us all up <laughs> because we were could be tainted. But God said, I want to be in relationship with you through Jesus. Amen? So that's what it means to be incarnational. Let's pray together, and then we're going to shift gears here just to say, but let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that You want us to keep our focus there on Jesus who is worthy of our attention and Lord you have asked us you have invited us to be people who share and point out both the truth and the grace of Jesus to say this person, this Jesus is both human and divine and this Jesus is worthy of our attention, worthy to be followed and not someone to be ignored. So Lord would you help us, would you send your holy spirit upon us your church or your followers to incarnate our neighborhood to move into our neighborhoods relationally with your love and your grace and your truth together and thank you god for being with us today thank you for being in among us today and your holy spirit working in our hearts and minds today and we pray that even as we have new members join our church and as we celebrate communion together we pray that and you invite your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds today as we've gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen.